Thank you, Ron. Um, no, that was really sincere, Ron. That really was. Just love you and your humor. No, hey, friends, good to be with you. Um, we are on our final, uh, well, actually we're not. We're just in another week of our series called Upside Down Kingdom. We've got a couple more to go. I'm going to ask this morning that you grab your Bible, pull it out, open to Luke chapter 6. We are... I think it's our last day on page 837 if you're using the Pew Bible, so we can finally move off of page 837 next week. Um, but we're in this series called Upside Down Kingdom where Jesus is talking about what it looks like to live in His kingdom and for His kingdom and experience the kingdom life. And uh, as you turn to Luke 6, we're going to be in verses 46 to 49 this morning. Um, let me share this with you. I was reading this week about some... Some research that's been done in the business world, actually, and as it turns out, uh, a large number of organizations suffer from what one writer called the problem of inertia. And if, if you know what inertia is, it is simply this idea that things tend to keep moving in the same direction that they are currently going. Inertia is is why we need, we need seatbelts. Inertia is the reason that you get crushed on that spinny ride at the fair if you're sitting on the outside. Um, that, that's inertia. So these organizations, according to the research, they, they see things moving in the wrong direction. They see patterns and trends, and they are unable to change them. They, they see what's going on, but they cannot reverse the momentum of what's happening. And what the research shows, and this is the crazy part, is that most of the time, most companies know what their problems are. Very few companies look around and go, man, I have no idea what's going on. Most, most organizations understand their issues. They just cannot seem to fix them. They, they can't seem to, to resist the force of inertia and implement and do something different. It's what's often called the knowing-doing gap, the gap between what we know and what we do. For example, uh, an organization may have customer service problems. They know they have customer service problems. They see their ratings for poor customer service. They know how important good customer service is, and so they appoint maybe a task force or maybe even task forces to make recommendations. They even write great customer service in their core values statement. Some of you have been a part of these kind of companies. And yet, they just never actually get around to changing the trend and doing good customer service. You see, it's not a problem of knowing. It's not a problem of ignorance. The problem is application. The problem is doing, putting a new behavior into practice. Now, as it turns out, organizations aren't the only things that suffer from the problem of inertia and the knowing-doing gap. In fact, what we find is, and some of you have experienced this in your life and you've seen it happen in the lives of other, others, people, people like you and me, we suffer from the same kind of problem. This knowing-doing gap. It's not that we don't know what to do. We just don't know how to change what we do. And no one understands this more than Jesus. Jesus has, um, for some reason, tremendous insight into humanity. I'm not sure how that quite happened. Jesus knows this. He knows that most often our issues aren't rooted in the fact that we don't know what to do, but that we just do not apply what we know. And this is why I believe... At the end of his very famous Sermon on the Plain, Jesus decides to end with these words. Now think about this for a minute. 
Jesus has just given this, this soaring talk, this inspiring message. The crowds have come from all over. They've gathered around. And Jesus has um, given them this, this compelling description of what it looks like to embrace the kingdom life and experience blessing that this world can and will never give you. And then he closes this sermon of all sermons with these words. This is Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a person building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a person who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. Now, it's interesting when you consider the the question Jesus opens this final paragraph with, with. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, I always wonder, why does Jesus have to do the double Lord thing? Why does he have to repeat Lord twice? Wouldn't it just be enough for him to say, why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? Well, in the ancient world, much like in our world, repetition was actually used um, as an emphasis. You ever, you ever experienced this where people repeat something because they really want to emphasize it? And it's the repetition that actually means, like, I feel really passionate. My kids seem to understand this concept every night when it comes to dessert. They just repeat, oh, they think the more they ask, the, the louder, the more passionate, the more sincerely they just, you know, request, the, the more uh, I'm going to feel their need for dessert after dinner. So, yeah, there's this... this That's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, in the ancient world, you know, he's saying, these people are folks who are emphatic in their claim that he is Lord. These folks that Jesus is talking about in this passage, they aren't just ho-hum Christians. They aren't just, you know, Christmas and Easter church attenders. These are the folks who are committed. They are passionate. They show up to church early. They've got Bibles in tow. They're the hand raisers during worship. You all know who those folks are. I can make fun of them because I'm one of those too. These are people who really, really believe Jesus is my Lord. Passionate, deeply moved, emotionally sincere people. And Lord, by the way, just simply means here, master. It's the word kyrios. It refers to a person who makes decisions or gives direction or calls the shots in your life. One scholar I read this week said, to call someone Lord is to say, I submit to you. I submit my life to you. I I read a great description this week of of the word kingdom. You know, we've been talking about the upside down kingdom, to live in this kingdom that kind of has values and ideas and habits and practices that sort of flip everything upside down. And this author said, if you think of your life as a dome, like all the parts of your life are inside of this, this dome, 
all of your activities and all your thoughts and all your feelings and all your actions and all your relationships and how you spend your time and your money and how you use your influence and what you do at home and at work and when you're on vacation. Like every single part and every single facet of your life is inside of this dome. And he says, embracing the kingdom of God is to say, I want God to be the king of my dome. It's the king's dome. That's the kingdom, friends. And so Jesus starts off the conclusion of his message about the kingdom, about making your life this dome where God is king. And he says, why do you so emphatically and passionately insist that I am the master of your life, that I am the king of your dome, and yet... You don't live as if that's true in any way. I mean, it's as if Jesus is saying, let's think about this for a minute. Do you think that your emotions or your words or your sense of conviction or sincerity or good intentions even, do you think that is actually going to propel you into living the kingdom life? Is that what it means to to make Jesus king and Lord? Just to, to feel some stuff, to think some stuff? To say some stuff? Well, just, you know, those things alone, even if done passionately and emphatically, will that lead to a life of blessing? A life that's that's prized and not pitied by God? And this is what so many of us do. I mean, it sounds, when you think about it that way, it sounds silly, and yet it's what so many of us do. We have this sense that good intentions are enough. Good intentions... Are enough. This is why you can find loads of exercise equipment on Craigslist. <laughs> it's because we believe good intentions are enough. You know, how many times do you see people buying exercise equipment or joining a gym or signing up for a diet and, and it just feels so good to do that? That's why it's so easy to buy those workout machines on those infomercials because you think, man, if I have, I, I'm going to do it this time. It's really going to happen. And I'll just let you in on a little secret. There's something about making that step, taking that act, that actually in your psyche, it feels as if you've already succeeded on some level. Do you ever experience this? This is a little secret for my life. Don't let it leave this room. But every now and then I'll decide like, I just need to lose five pounds. Most of the time it's about springtime and I'm thinking about like, you know, going to the pool or the beach or whatever. And I'm thinking I should just lose five pounds, ten pounds. And I'll wake up one morning and I'll just go, today's the day. Today is the day I'm going to eat healthy today. And my wife knows because she'll be like, oh no, it's one of those days. And I'll be like, it's the day today and I'll get and I'll go in the bathroom that morning and just even deciding that I'm going to eat better that day, I look at myself in the mirror and this is honestly true. I think I, think I look thinner already. <laughs> I mean, and there's nothing that's changed. I just, I ate ice cream the night before at like 9.45. But just the decision alone, just the intention of losing weight makes me feel like I've actually lost weight. It's, it's ridiculous. It's silly. Jesus says, believing something in your mind, having good intentions, feeling passionate and emphatic about something is not enough. He says it's not what I'm after. It's not what my kingdom is all about. In fact, Jesus says, to have this kind of a response apart from action, to separate those feelings and beliefs and words and to separate those from actually acting and implementing will in the end deceive you. That's the road, that's the path of being self-deceived. If you get into this habit 
of responding to the kingdom, responding to Jesus' teaching by just thinking, yeah, yeah, that's right, Jesus, you are Lord, by saying it with your mouth, by feeling the emotion, but you never align your life or start to move or shift. Self-deception is on the way. This is exactly, actually, what, what James says. Um, Jesus' little brother. And by the way, just as kind of a side note, do you, does anyone else here find it amazing that Jesus' little brother was actually one of like the main followers of Christ? One of the main guys that promoted Jesus being son of God? I mean, when you think about that, that's pretty impressive. It's a pretty good credential. How many here have a brother? What would it take for you, to, for your brother to convince you that he was the son of God? Like you live with that guy. You saw it all. And yet James, he thinks he's like one of the main proponents that Jesus was actually who he claimed to be, which is, you know, kind of a whole apologetic unto itself. But look at me real quickly at James chapter 1. These are Jesus' little brother's words. And here's what he writes on this very same subject about applying what Jesus teaches. He says, Do not merely, you can look at it on the screen, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. If you're only listening, if it's just for your ears, if it's just for your mind, if it's just for your brain, and you don't do what it says, you're on the path of self-deception. And then he adds this, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at their face in a mirror and after looking at themselves, goes away and immediately forgets what they look like. Now, I got to admit, I've read this verse many, many times over the years, and it wasn't until this week, when I spent some time on it, that I actually really started to understand what James is getting at here. So maybe some of you like figured it out years ago, but for me, this is like fresh stuff this week. And here's what James is describing. And, and, and you'll understand this once you hear it. It's like, this makes perfect sense. He's describing a process that most of us go through all of the time. Every single day, probably. In fact, most of you have probably already been through this very process this morning. You get up. You get up. Like the alarm clock goes up, goes off. The kids wake up. For whatever reason, you rouse. You get up. You stumble out of bed. You go into the bathroom. You flick the light on. You look in the mirror. And what you see makes you say, Oh, Wow. Like, 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 oh, wow. Like, you know, like, that ain't pretty. That needs some work. Can't leave the house looking like that. Oh, wow. You ever have the oh, wow moment? Yeah, you do. You have the oh, wow moment. And James is saying this. Just imagine, just imagine getting up in the morning, walking in the bathroom, having the oh, wow morning moment, and then just getting dressed, forgetting what you saw, and simply going on with your day without doing anything about the oh wow. In fact, James says, you forget what you look like to such an extent that you go on with your day and not only do you just ignore the fact that, that oh wow is happening, but you actually think you look good. It's like you're rolling into the office, you're coming to church like, hey, what's up? And people are like giving you the double look like, oh, hey, how are you? And you're like, Fine fine like you're you're thinking you're putting on the ritz or something no friends james's point is this you would never do that in fact i'm looking around the room this morning and i bet you we're batting you know a thousand here no one this morning did that no one this morning got up looked in the mirror said oh wow and then just completely ignored that and came to church we all spent some time remembering what we looked like and 
fixing it. (laughs) Fixing it, right? In fact, some of you have entire drawers filled with oh wow face fixing materials. Most of us, when we travel, we won't even leave home without special little bags that we can pack with, oh wow, face-fixing stuff that we won't even check. We're keeping that in the carry-on, right? (laughs) Can't live without that stuff. The world does not deserve that, okay? So, So James says this. James says, the problem is this. We spend more time and are more concerned with fixing what is in the physical mirror than we do fixing what is in the mirror of our hearts and souls. See, we never even consider looking in the mirror in the morning, saying, oh wow, and completely ignoring it. But all the time, we listen to the words of Jesus. We look into the mirror of our souls and we walk away and we do nothing about it and we forget what we look like on the inside, what Jesus says our hearts look like. And the more we do it, friends, the more we look through the teachings of Jesus, through the Word of God, at our souls, at our hearts, and then just walk away and just ignore it and do nothing about it, the more deceived we get. And what's what's the worst part about this is that in the church, sometimes we do this thing where ignoring our spiritual stuff not taking action to fix the stuff we see in our lives, sometimes that becomes this this real sort of take action avoidance process that we make seem so spiritual. It's actually a really common part of church life. It it goes something like this. Imagine a guy who gets up in the morning and, and goes into the bathroom and sees that he's got some serious bedhead. Some mass, like, it's everywhere. And this is the days when bedhead, bedhead used to be cool for a while, but bedhead is no longer cool. It is out, in case you were wondering. So you get up, you see the bedhead, I'll just pretend like this is me. But instead of combing my hair, instead of fixing the, oh wow, I just ignore it and I just go to work. And then Pastor Dan sees me and he's like, hey Dave, how's it going today? I'm like, good man, going great. He's like, so, did you, uh, did you comb your hair today? Oh. No, I didn't. I really wanted to, and I thought about it. And um, I was reading this passage this morning, in my quiet time even, about combing my hair. It was really speaking to me. I mean, it was like, I mean, have you ever had those moments where you just open the Bible and God just talks to you? It was just speaking to me, like about this need that I have to comb my hair, but I just couldn't quite get there. I just couldn't quite muster, like, the strength to do it. Could you just pray for me? Could you pray that I could... And then we go to you know community group and the community group does the check-in. So Dave, hey, a couple weeks ago you shared about this trouble you're having with combing your hair. I just how's that going? Ah oh, man, I'm I'm glad you guys asked because I didn't do it again today. I didn't comb it today. And Dan noticed that the Amy said something on the way out of the house. And man, again, can we just? Man, I just need the I just. I need the Holy Spirit to help. Can we just, and then the small group leader is like, you know, can we just pause the group? Let's just, let's just gather around Dave. Let's lay hands on him and just pray that the Spirit empowers him and leads him and really helps him, convicts him that maybe he could start just more consistently comb that hair. And this sounds kind of like a silly thing, doesn't it? But 
But it's what we do all the time with the stuff that we see in our lives, with the stuff that Jesus and his teaching like shines a light on in our souls. There's something about, you know, just feeling bad about it, feeling guilty. And, and, friends, and friends, here's the deal. Some of us have had horrible habits and overindulgences and lack of discipline and some of us have been living this self-focused earthly gratifying life for years and every time it comes up we go yeah he prayed for me i just really need to work on that and at some point jesus has got to be saying can we start to implement can we do something can we put some of my teaching into practice It's not going to just magically go away. But in the church, we have this thing where we kind of feel closer to God when we just wallow and talk about our sin. We just kind of wallow in it and talk about it. You know, at least we're honest and open and transparent. And then the biggest one is this, like we feel guilty. This is really big in some churches. If you feel guilty, then you had a God experience. Because when you feel guilty, that means God showed up. You know, I, I was at church and pastor was talking about it. And man, he was just hammering me. I just felt so guilty. Whoo, that must mean I'm a really spiritually sensitive person still. Because I still feel guilty and convicted. And it's as if God is looking down. He's like, I can see that you still feel really bad about this. Even after all these years, you still feel awful. Great work. boy. Man, I hope you feel guilty next week when it comes up again. Good job. Go on home. Continue on. Well done. Right? Friends, James says, when you look into your life and the teaching of Jesus says stuff needs to change, but you call him Lord, you say, Jesus, you are Lord of my life, and then you never take action, you are just deceiving yourself. You're pretending. You're deceiving yourself into believing. I'm following Jesus. I'm walking with Jesus. I'm living in the kingdom. But you're not. You're not living in the kingdom. You're not experiencing the kingdom. And you don't make any change. This is not the kingdom life God wants you to have. Jesus says, there is something better. He's come to, by his grace, and, and completely for free, offer you something better, something deeper, something more sustainable than just calling Jesus Lord, just feeling something or believing something or saying something and then experiencing no life change. Some of you have been sitting in church and you wonder like, man, I've been going to church for years, but this Jesus thing, it really doesn't work. Well, it doesn't really work until you apply this Jesus thing to your life. It's not a magic formula. If you sit here long enough and listen to me intently enough, then God's just going to sprinkle down fairy dust and your life's going to get completely fixed and changed. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that God will empower you and help you and partner with you as you apply his teaching to change your life and transform this world. That is available to you 100% completely for free, but it will not just happen automatically. It will take effort and energy and a submission of your will to step in to what God wants to do in and through you. And if your words say Jesus is Lord, but your life is just still functioning as a part of this world, then you're not really experiencing the kingdom. And here's the scariest thing for me. What strikes me with the scariest part of this whole story that Jesus tells is this guy. 
Um, in the story, it's a guy, and that makes sense, probably because guys take longer to figure this stuff out than ladies sometimes. But um, this guy who builds this house on the ground, the one with no foundation, just kind of throws it up. He doesn't dig down deep. He doesn't apply himself and work at really founding his life on Jesus. What freaks me out about him is that he seems to have deceived himself for so long that he thinks he's all good. He doesn't seem to see any difference between himself and the other person who's actually working to apply the teaching of Jesus. He just completely misses that he's missing it. It's not until when? It's not until the flood comes that he realizes my life wasn't really about following Jesus at all. You see, sometimes... We, we, we wonder what this flood is, and, and a lot of times in church we think anything that's tragic or ultimate or awful, he must be talking about death. I do not think when Luke talks about this flood, he's talking about death at all. What Luke is talking about is any sort of tragedy that rips away the foundation of this person's home. Any sort of tragedy that exposes what your life is actually built on. And he's, what he's saying is this. When the flood comes and exposes that your life's not built on the kingdom, but on the things of this world, then you'll see. When the flood comes and takes your money, then the house is going down. When the flood comes and takes your popularity, when the flood comes and and steals your success, or robs you of your reputation, or hits you with some poor health, when the flood comes and your youth and beauty and good looks start to fade because the flood is coming, friends. When the flood comes and takes the stuff in this world your life is truly built on, that's when you're going to understand that even though you said passionately and fervently and emphatically and tried to convince yourself that you believed it in your brain, Jesus hasn't truly been Lord of your life. They were just words. So Jesus says this, when the mirror of his teaching shines a light back into your soul and all of a sudden through his words, through the word of God, through things he says, you start to see some stuff in you. Some oh wow stuff. Some stuff that shouldn't be there. Some stuff that needs to change. Some things that you need to embrace. Some values that you need to shed and retool. Maybe some some different ways of spending your time or money or resources or maybe some different attitudes that you need to take towards different groups of people. When, when the Word of God comes and shines a light on your soul, Jesus says, don't ignore that stuff because there are two kinds of people in those moments. There's the person who hears those words and does not put them into practice, just continues on, obliviously saying, Jesus is Lord, but my life doesn't change. And then there's the person who hears those words and puts them into practice. Who says, God, I don't want to stay the same. I want to experience your kingdom. I want more of what you have to offer. Let's tackle this stuff together. Let's fix it. I submit To you, come truly be the king of my dome. And the very simple question that Jesus lobs to us, friends, at the end of this sermon is this. Which person are you? If God is really king of your dome right now, what would change? If he was calling the shots in your life, Are there things that would change? 
Sure, He's got grace. Sure, He can forgive. But He also has power and wants to change your life. What would change if God were truly King of your dome, if Jesus were really Lord? Are you ready to do the hard work of putting what Jesus teaches into practice? Are you willing to surrender your life? That's what this sermon is about. Jesus saying, surrender your life to me. Experience the kingdom and the blessedness of what that will mean for you. Now let me offer you one thing, friends. One of the things about following Jesus that I find to be a pitfall, at least for me, is that when I start to do this, with Jesus and his teaching into my soul, I don't just find one thing. I find lots of things. There's lots of oh wow moments in here. And then I let my wife look in and she points out a few more. (laughs) And here's the trap that I sometimes fall into. There's just so much to change. There's just so much to do. There's just so much transformation needs to happen. I just don't have the energy for it. And so instead of doing everything, I just do nothing I think Jesus would say, do something. Don't do everything. Don't try and do it all at once. But take one truth, one teaching, one oh wow area and partner with God and begin to put teaching into practice and go to work. One of the most humbling things that I've ever been told as a pastor was by a guy who came up to me several years ago. And it was after a church service and he came down front and he sat like in the pew with me and he said, Pastor, I just need to tell you something. Several years ago, I used to just come to church every week. I used to listen. I used to think some things. I used to even feel some things. I'd even have emotional response to the sermon sometimes. And then I would go home and I would live my life exactly the same as I had every week before. He said, but I want you to know something. That all changed a few years back. I just got tired of it. I just got tired of never experiencing the promises of God. I just got tired of never experiencing transformation. I just got tired of playing church. And he said, I want you to know this. From that point forward, a few years back, my wife and I have committed to every single week doing whatever the pastor says in the sermon. Whatever you challenge us with, whatever, whoever is preaching, whoever opens the word of God, whatever they challenge us to do, whatever action they challenge us to take, we are fully committed to doing every single thing. And I just want you to know, every single time you challenge me, I'm doing, I'm doing it. I'm taking every single challenge. I'm not walking out of here, leaving some on the table. I want you to know that. And friends, I gotta tell you, that was like one of the most humbling scary, horrifying pieces of information. Because as pastors, we really hope for that, but we kind of know it's not going to happen. I mean, I watch you guys. I say, like, write a name down during communion. I'm looking over my shoulder and, like, four of you wrote. Come on, you're killing me. No, but the, the fact that this guy was doing everything, you know what it made me think? It made me think this. It made me think, well, man, holy cow, what have I been challenging him to do the last couple of years? Is his life different? If he's really applying... The truth that I'm pulling out of the word of God and offering to him, is it the right truth? Is it truth that's really going to change and transform? I started really thinking about my application points a whole lot more seriously after that. And secondly, it forced me to commit again to doing the same thing myself. One of my very earliest commitments as a pastor was I just decided I wasn't going to be one of those pastors that just preached sermons and then kind of lived life over here, but that... 
I was going to live, at least to the best of my ability, by the grace of God, every single sermon that I preached. And there was a season in there where that kind of got a little bit fuzzy. But when that guy told me that, I was right back on it. And I got to tell you, friends, I'm not perfect at this. But when I offer challenges to you from the word of God, from this pulpit, I'm in it with you. When I say, write a name and have a conversation, I'm writing a name and having a conversation. When I say, you know, ask somebody about your climate, honestly just try and get some feedback on who you really are. Remember that, remember that sermon? I'm asking, I asked five people that question. Only three responded. The other two were just scared. But, but five or three people told me some stuff that was hard to hear. And some good stuff too. But some stuff that was hard to hear. I'm in it with you, friends. So here's how I want to end this morning, because it's how Jesus ends this sermon. This is the, the closing remarks of the sermon. We're going to continue on for the next couple of weeks to discover how this kingdom plays out in the lives of people beyond the message, beyond just the sermon. But this is the, the clo- these are the closing remarks. And so I want to respond to close the way Jesus closes. And that's just to say, what's going to change? Are you putting anything into practice? We just spent six weeks in the Sermon on the Plain. Is anything different about your life after six weeks? Have you taken any measurable action steps? Have you tried to put into practice anything that Jesus said? And so I want to offer that challenge with you to you, but also with kind of like this asterisk of a second chance. I'm I'm, I'm finishing up this morning. I'm going to read the entire Sermon on the Plain again. Top to bottom. Just the words of Jesus. No color commentary. Just right through. New Living Translation. I just invite you to do this. Close your eyes. Listen to these words. Ask yourself. Invite the Holy Spirit to help you with this. Lord, where do I need to apply these words of you? What does it look like for me to take action? To put these words into practice because I do not want to be one of those people that just hears and says and feels but never actually experiences the transforming power of applying your word in my life. Here we go. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 7. The Sermon on the Plain. Coming down off of the mountain with them, Jesus stood on a plain surrounded by disciples and was soon joined by a huge congregation from all over Judea and Jerusalem, even from the seaside towns of Tyre and Sidon. They had come both to hear him and to be cured of their ailments. Those disturbed by evil spirits were healed. Everyone was trying to touch him. So much energy surging from him. So many people healed. Then he spoke. God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man. When that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets that same way. What sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you have your only happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now, for a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now, for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. 
What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds, for their ancestors also praised false prophets. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, Why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend other sinners money for a full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend it to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For He is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others or it will all come back against you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together, to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Then Jesus gave the following illustration. Can one blind person lead another? Won't they both fall into a ditch? Students are not greater than their teacher, but the student who is fully trained will become like the teacher. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching and then follows it. It is like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it is well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. Friends, there's a lot there. And in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to come to the table. Take the bread and take the cup. 
and hold on to those, take them back to your seat. I just want you to consider, God, where are you asking me to take action in my life? Where are you, are you holding up a mirror so that I can see some stuff in my soul that needs to be addressed? Where, Lord, can I use the power that you offer through your death and resurrection to become more the person you want me to become, that you might be more king of my life? Friends, think about where God is leading you. Just one place, one action step, one thing today. And then when you're ready, I'm going to give you an entire song here just to, to come forward. Come forward, take the bread, take the cup back to your seat, and we'll receive it together in just a minute. But just spend some time with God this morning. Commune with Him and ask Him where He wants you to move. Father, thank You for this time. Thank You for... Thank you for this call to action because I know, Lord, that at least for me, sometimes I just wouldn't. I wouldn't act unless you called me and pushed me and nudged me and said I'll be with there, with you there in it. So, so move us, Lord. Help us to see exactly the places where we need to do some work. Help us to see that. Different people, different things. Your Holy Spirit, we invite you, Lord. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.